And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I sat down in Washington the other day with Nancy Pelosi, the Democratic leader of the House, for my Axe Files TV show. Here is an extended version of that conversation in which we talk not just about her life and career, but about the raft of issues that are roiling Washington today. We are here at Trinity Washington University, which I know Leader Pelosi has a great place in your heart and your history. But uh, as I welcome you, I want to ask you about some more contemporary uh, issues, Uh, one being this famous meeting that you had with President Trump recently in the Oval Office, the leaders meeting, you and Chuck Schumer, Mitch McConnell, Paul Ryan, at which you were discussing the budget. And you went in expecting one kind of meeting, and it turned into a different kind of meeting. What exactly happened in that office when you were able to strike, strike a deal with the president? Well, we did not. We knew what we, Chuck Schumer and I knew what we were bringing into the meeting. So that was no surprise. We said in advance and told them that we wanted three months for the debt ceiling. This is pretty inside baseball. Yes, right. But to a shorter deal on extending the debt and a shorter budget. What was different about the meeting was that the instead of just being the leadership of the Congress, House, and Senate, Democrats and Republicans, uh, Secretary Mnuchin, Secretary of Treasury, was there, and he made a, a pitch about why it was important to raise the debt ceiling, a lecture we didn't need, because we've always been there to lift the debt ceiling. But he wanted a longer extension well, of the debt Well, he wanted 18-month debt, uh, uh, debt ceiling, and I said, if, if you have the votes, you can have whatever you want. And I said to the president, Mr. President, the vote is the currency of the realm. Maybe not on Wall Street and maybe not in New York uh, real estate, but in Congress, the vote is the currency of the realm. If you have the votes, you have 18 months. If you don't have the votes, three months. And, uh, and then the meeting went on. Various proposals were thrown out there. Did you uh, think going in that you were going to prevail in that argument? Well, it wasn't a question of prevailing. We were not going past three months. So they were going to either have to have the votes or agree to three months. And Leader Schumer was very vocal about this subject, as you can just imagine, and uh, articulate. And then when they suggested three months for the budget, the, the continuing resolution, again, inside baseball, yes, then he said, you want three months? We'll give you three months for that, and we'll give you three months for a debt ceiling, but it's the same amount of time. Uh, and then, uh, then it turned into, well, it turned into the president saying, why not six months? Let's compromise. Why not six months? To which his people said, you can't do six months. The Department of Defense can't wait six months for its mm-hmm. uh, next uh, infusion of appropriations. So the president said, they can't wait six months. You don't have the votes for 18 months, three months. Which didn't sit well with, uh, what were, what, what? were Ryan and uh, McConnell uh, doing through this? You guys must have realized, well, we just won the battle here. Well, the point is, is that we, if they had the votes, again, the vote is the currency of the realm. They have a majority in the House. They have a majority in the Senate. They have the president's signature. So if they had the votes, they didn't even have to have the meeting. Once they had the meeting, we knew that we would either prevail with the three months or they'd have to come up with the votes. Uh, it struck me reading about that and just uh, that I had never seen 
I had sat in a, in a few of these meetings I when I was at the White House. You were there. Um, I'd never seen a situation where the president kind of shut down his own side and sided with uh, the, the opposition. And I was thinking to myself, well, what would Pelosi have said if she were sitting in mm-hmm. their shoes? Well, we, wouldn't, we would have had the votes. We always had the votes. <laughs> they didn't have the votes. But it was, they were not happy with what the president did. In fact, I understand later uh, that what the, the president was advised before the meeting is one thing you cannot agree to are the three, uh, three months. And, uh, and he did. Uh, so, again, uh, they were trying to say, well, we haven't whipped it. We don't know. But if they, if they thought they had the votes, again, they wouldn't have the meeting. And basically to enlarge the issue to a bigger uh, playing field as we go forward, because it's always about how we go forward. Uh, if they don't have the votes on the uh, appropriations bills and the rest, if they want our votes, they'll have to sh- share our values. And they pretty much need your votes because there is a segment of the Republican caucus that generally opposes raising the debt ceiling, generally opposes right. spending. So yeah. they, they need your votes. Well, they need our votes. And basically what I was saying to the president was, Mr. President, this is not considered a good vote for some of their members. They don't like it. So they're asking me to ask my members to take what would be a difficult vote for them in their districts to let their person off the hook. That's not going to happen. And as you make these arguments, do you get the sense that you're educating the president about this process did he, was he not aware of all of that? I don't know what he was aware of, but it became clear to him that the vote is the currency of the realm. I keep saying the same thing. Yeah, the votes, that's really important. But you see, uh, the importance of the Senate in all of this is also that they didn't have the votes in the House. That's why we were having this back and forth. Uh, but uh, Leader Schumer's role is very enhanced because even if they pass something in the House, by the time they get to the Senate, they need 60 votes. So they're going to have to cooperate at some point. And we always want to cooperate. You know, we understand that they have the signature. We had the signature before, even though they had the majority. But still, we had to cooperate. So any time that we can bring people together, find our common ground, we have a responsibility to do that. If we can't find our common ground, we have to stand our ground. But let's try to find it first. You know, a lot of Democrats... Uh, have said that they're not that comfortable with what you just said. Yeah. Uh, let's leave aside whether people entirely believe that each side is uh, trying to find common ground. But uh, but they, there's a suggestion that maybe Democrats shouldn't cooperate uh, with this president, that it legitimates him, that it normalizes him. And uh, there are people who are still angry about the lack of cooperation they felt that President Obama got. What do you, what do you say to those people? Well, what I say to them is what Mitch McConnell did to President Obama was completely wrong. Uh, when he, uh, when the Republicans took the majority and President Obama was president, they said the most important, Mitch said the most important thing we can do is make sure he doesn't succeed, that he's a one-term president. That's, that's absolutely wrong. It wasn't what we did when we had the majority with President Bush. He, he you took- worked pretty hard to beat President no, Bush. but we, but we, on where we had disagreement, but where we could find common ground, we did. Now, what could be worse than the war in Iraq? The Bush administration took us into the war in Iraq on the basis of a misrepresentation to the American people. That was wrong, but it didn't negate the um, 
reality that we had to find common ground. We passed the biggest energy bill in the history of our country, What Barney Fra- another bill that Barney Frank called the most progressive tax bill, uh, refundable tax credits to poor mm-hmm. families, mm-hmm. Uh, uh, issues that related to PEPFAR and AIDS drugs. The list goes on and on uh, with, um, uh, with President Bush, even though we didn't agree on every subject. Mm-hmm. And, and they did not uh, do that with President Bush. And we believe we have a responsibility to find common ground. Now, uh, President Trump seemed pretty pleased with the deal that you cut and reportedly called you guys the next day. What what did he say after you cut this budget deal? I I read somewhere that he said the the press was fantastic. (laughs) Something to that effect. On this. (laughs) Is that what motivates him? I mean, he seems to watch a lot of TV. I would be the last person to understand what motivates him. Mm-hmm. But you have to think about that, right? Because you need to try and motivate him to uh, work with you on some of these issues, like the issue of these children of uh, undocumented immigrants, this DACA issue. Mm-hmm. He invited you over to dinner. That's another meeting now. Another meeting. You and, and Chuck Schumer, right. not the Republican leaders. And you came out of there and you said you had a, a, a sort of a deal in principle. Agreement. Mm-hmm. To... Uh, to, to, to legalize these, uh, these kids who came here with their parents uh, and yes. essentially were raised To support the here. DREAM Act, specifically to support the DREAM Act, uh, which protects mm-hmm. these uh, DREAMers, uh, the doctors. In exchange for... Uh, well, that we would then further discuss uh, some issues that related to our security. And uh, that's how we went forward the next day. When the president called, I said, Mr. President, you have to uh, uh, you have to make sure that the dreamers know that we're not going after their families or this or that. And then he did tweet to that effect momentarily after that. Were you surprised by that? Surprised by what? That he tweeted that, that you asked him to do it and he did? No, he said he was going to do it. Uh, he has not told us yet that he's not doing uh, the Dream Act. Uh, so, but but it was not. In other words, we did not agree to any terms in terms of the security, except that we would discuss it and con- find our common ground. What the administration has put forth on this is so totally out Since of the question. Then, this, yeah. this this week, actually, they put yeah. out principles that were pretty pretty tough. That included the border wall and some other uh, items that are unacceptable to you. And then the president himself. Uh, tweeted out, the problem with agreeing to a policy on immigration is that the Democrats don't want secure borders. They don't care about safety for the USA. The the, the implication here is that uh, the the deal you thought you had may not be a deal. Well, we'll see. I mean, I think that you call them the principles they put out. They're a very unprincipled list of uh, proposals that they put out. Uh, The president's tweet is irresponsible, of course, we take an oath to protect and defend the American people. Securing our border is our responsibility, and they know that. But it's, it's cute, but it's not real. Uh, so we will have to find some common ground. But he, uh, by putting in even the wall, it, it demonstrated that now their people, the wall is incidental to them. What they want is severe internal uh, uh, enforcement that goes after families. And this is wrong. That's not who we are as a country. We can find our common ground. And the more people we protect, the more concessions we might be able to make, but not ones that throw due process out the window, build walls, send little children, little children. I'm not even talking about DACA now. I'm talking about little children back across the border. When you were sitting with the president at that dinner, 
Did he uh, express solicitude for these yes. 800,000 yes, uh, DACA yeah. young people? He and did. was it was it compelling to you? Did you feel like he it was coming from a sincere place? Well, whether it was or not, I choose to believe that it was, mm-hmm. and that um, the f- fact is, as I've said, and Chuck, I said it wasn't because Chuck had great co- table manners. He does, but that was not what he. I've uh, eaten with him. I'm not sure, but no, I, he does. He does. He's a gentleman. Mm-hmm. And I said it's not about your table manners, Chuck. It's that over eighty some percent of the American people support. The dreamers. So it's not about us. He wasn't. He wasn't responding to us. He was responding to the American people, and that's what he'll have to continue to do. Now, let me just say this: but he has a very inflamed base that doesn't share this view. Yeah, but disproportionately, they don't share this view, and they call this amnesty. And uh, even within his own staff, there are people who don't uh, support that. They help craft some of these principles that. Oh went yes, to so the, the, the people the, who crafted this uh, have a, 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 would have turned, completely turned their back on the Statue of Liberty and who America is. And that's who they are. But we're talking about the president and our direct communication with him. Yes, he's fed red meat uh, to his, some in his base, but not all of his base support this. Many people understand uh, that these children should be here and they should be protected. Oh, well over 50% of the American people think they should be on a path to citizenship. Another large number of them, 12 or so more, say, to legalization. So this, this comes down to like 12% of the American people who don't think they should, uh, should stay here. The clock is ticking on this yeah. because the president ended the order that President right. Obama signed. In, in, in uh, March, uh, the, the status of a number of these young people is going to begin to change. Um, are you willing? I, I know... Uh, I was there uh, when uh, Democrats uh, hit Republicans very hard for threatening to shut mm-hmm. down the government in 1995 and 2013. Uh, would you be willing government. to shut the government down over this issue? Well, we don't want to shut down. I didn't ask you whether you'd want to. I no, said, would you be willing no, what to? What I'm saying is the following. If they need our votes for the, uh, keeping government, if they need our votes for the uh, what we call the omnibus, again, inside mm-hmm. the omnibus. To keep the government but, running. Well, if they want our votes for that, they have to share our values. That's the way it's always been. And we've always won that fight. Even when they're winning elections, we've won that fight last December. We won that fight the end of April when we had to revisit it again. And we will win it again. Isn't Unless that why they wanted to extend everything past 18 months, past the next election? Because they didn't want to give you leverage on yeah. issues like this. No, it's because they wanted to give themselves leverage on issues like this. Right. But my point is this. Would you be willing? I'm picking through all your language No, I'm not. That's not our... our, I know it's not your interest. It's not your goal. No, no, what we're saying is we want to do this long before December. We'd like to do it in the month of October and and before Thanksgiving so that this is finished. Uh, if it has to go until December, then we'll have it as part of a larger discussion. But we'd rather get it done in advance. And there's no reason to wait. It's, we, know what the oppor- we know what the possibilities are. We know what the choices are. Let's just get it done so we can remove the fear that people have. And again, address uh, what the American people believe about this. You're speaking in the demure uh, language of Washington. Um, but the, uh, the question is, would you take that off the table? Would we take uh, off the, the shutdown of the government? Would you would you be uh, take that off the table as a uh, point of discussion 
if this doesn't get done. With the, let me just make it clear, since you're saying we're speaking, the Republicans have the votes. They have the majority in the House, they have the majority in the Senate, and they have the signature of the President of the United States. It's up to them to keep government open. Um, <laughs> okay. I will I also interpret that through the prism of, of Washington, and I, I, I think that's a pretty well, that's du- what direct... It is. direct I mean, they, the elections have ramifications. Let me ask you a question. You say they've got the votes, they've got the White House, they've got the Senate and the House. Uh, why hasn't why hasn't more gotten done? Uh, you were you had the House and the Senate and a president. Now larger majorities in both houses, a more popular president. But you got the Affordable Care Act done, the uh, the uh, Dodd Frank financial reform done, the Recovery Act done. Big landmark pieces of legislation. This was when you were Speaker of the House. What what are they not doing that they should be doing? Well, in our in our caucus, we work from consensus. We talk about what our goal is and what our possibilities are, and then we are unified. And unity is not only a great uh, uh, message; it is a way to get things done. And that's how we built uh, what we were doing on. Um, the Recovery Act, what we did on health care and the rest. It wasn't about saying that, as the president does, this is what I want, vote on it, yes or no. We, we build it from, from our, our caucus and our consensus, and then we go forward in a unified way and have the votes. Now, one of the things I would say, because I think it's in, instructive about one comparison or another, when we did the Affordable Care Act, this was major. We're talking Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, the Affordable Care Act, pillars of economic and health security for our nation. 20 million people getting health care access. But not only that, 125 or 30 million people getting improved mm-hmm. benefits, essential benefits, uh, no pre-existing... Well, it was very popular, though. I mean, I was I, there. I understand that, because it wasn't messaged when you were there. But the <laughs> fact is, is that we did our, our work to get the job done. So when they came in and said they were going to... And we brought the bill to the floor when we had the votes... They came in, and so we did it from the standpoint of our timing related to the votes. They came in, and their timing uh, related to spite. They just want to do it on the day that President Obama uh, signed the bill. And they said, that's the day. Where, so when you, when you give yourself an artificial deadline, you're doomed. You have to bring it to the floor when you have the votes, not about related to something that had seven years before. And as you know, they had to pull the bill. You were friendly day. with John Boehner, uh-huh. who uh, preceded Speaker Ryan yeah. as Speaker. Uh, tell me about him and, and Paul Ryan as, and their different styles. They seem to be running into the same problem. And yet, you know, you seem to f- have a closer relationship with Boehner, more regard for him as a legislator. Well, the, uh, uh, I would say they both had the same problem, yes, uh, in terms of creating unity in their caucus, uh, but um, neither of them accomplished that much. But we did do some things working uh, with Mr. Boehner in terms of right now we're in a fight with the Republicans on SCHIP, State Children's Health Insurance Program, Community Health Centers. Mm-hmm. We worked that out uh, between us and, and, and with our 
our committee people and the rest to get it done for the American people, remove all doubt that there would be any question about it. They're still saying, well, we think we'll probably bring a partisan bill to the floor. Well, what's that about? Uh, you know, it's, it's not the right thing to do for our country. So I, I, I think that uh, Mr. Boehner was more experienced because he was there longer and experience counts for a lot. Uh, but uh, neither of them got that much done. The president uh, has uh, decided to decertify uh, the agreement uh, that was struck with Iran on uh, nuclear materials and nuclear weapons. You, you were a major force in the House on uh, this issue in helping uh, President Obama, Obama sustain that uh, policy. What, what are the ramifications of that from your standpoint? of President Trump's decision? Well, first, let me just say what a masterful job that President Obama did in this and working with John Kerry on the diplomatic side, uh, Secretary Moniz on the technical side of it, and Secretary of the Treasury, Jack Lew, and, and just a whole team of people, Wendy Sherman and the rest, a whole team of people who knew the subject so well to be participating in an initiative that engaged the EU, uh, the the Security Council 5 plus mm-hmm. 1 plus uh, uh, 1 at plus Germany, and the, uh, the issues uh, that related to understanding. I mean, they knew, Moniz knew the technicologies. They knew that John Kerry had amassed this group, and Hillary Clinton before him, and they knew that... Uh, well, what happens now? It sounds like his national security team didn't want to do this. Yeah. W- what happens now? Well, the, will, the, will the Congress... Uh, accept this and then move to to reinstate these sanctions and jeopardize this we'll see. agreement? We'll see. What will happen is if the president does this, we anticipate he will, and there's every reason to think that he will decertify. It will be a very major irresponsible act on his part. Uh, first of all, it's, it says uh, don't trust the Americans because uh, the president, on a whim, not on the basis of fact, if he has facts that, that Iran has not honored the agreement, show us those facts. But you don't ha- if you don't have the facts, don't do it on a whim or to cater to another country, which is, I think, this is about, as well as... Um, about Israel. Yeah. Well, not Israel, but Netanyahu. And, uh, I mean, I, I, I separate the two of them. But, the, um, but so what he's doing is gr- grossly and uh, irresponsible from the standpoint of... Remember this, what President Obama accomplished was that the uh, Iranians would stop the development of a nuclear weapon and it would be pushed all the way down the road. And he's saying, oh, well, it shouldn't have a sunset. Well, without the agreement, there was no sunset. It was a matter of months or a year. Now it's a decade. And one more point, and that is, what is the message that sends to North Korea if we're not saying that stopping proliferation is is, is so important to us that we will... Uh, honor our own word in that regard and, the, and joint, jointly with the other countries and, and the countries in the EU as well. A lot of heads were turning in Washington this week about the exchange between Senator Bob Corker, who's a Republican, the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and the president, yeah. in which Corker described the White House as an adult daycare center and uh, said that he was concerned that the president might be leading us uh, to World War III with his intemperance. In do you share that center, concern? The daycare center where the director was 
off that. Yes, day. yes. Uh, you, you followed the discussion. <laughs> well, I thought it was so, quite interesting that a uh, senior Republican leader in the Senate would say that about his. Do you share that concern about what that about the president's temperament and what the implications are in terms of the world? World War Three—that's a pretty significant. That's a big charge. Vector, there, there could yeah. be a, a serious military initiation of serious military action, which would be most unfortunate. Uh, I would say this. Uh, I, I'm not sure the president has understood that a president's words weigh a ton. And you can't say things casually and then say, well, I was just putting it way out there. Now they'll push me back. And we'll it, it, those words weigh a ton. And ra- uh, not only raises eyebrows, it raises serious concerns among our allies as to uh, uh, how far the president would be willing to go. It, it Maybe he's having fun with some of the the calm before the storm and things like that. Uh, but again... Well, he seems, to th- he seems to think that it sends an intimidating message to our adversaries, to North Korea, to the Iranians. Yeah, but the fact is, is that everything we do should be bringing people together, whether it's our allies, whether it's trying to find common ground to pr- prevent... Uh, the use of force and violence, and he's not, he's not doing that. Now, is uh, the head of North Korea a thug? Yes. I mean, he's terrible. But the fact is, why elevate him? The president has elevated him. He's vis-a-vis the president of the United States in this debate, and that, 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 that was not a positive initiative. But uh, for my whole life, the whole issue of nonproliferation has been an issue since I was a student at Trinity University, Washington, D.C., which was called Trinity College at that time. We always talked about uh, stopping nuclear weapons. That was ancient. That was a long time ago. Uh, But it has been part of uh, uh, what many of us have been attracted to public policy at the national level have been about. So we don't want the president to be frivolous about it. We don't want... North Korea to have a weapon. We don't want Iran to have a nuclear weapon. We don't want... What I'm worried about in the case of North Korea, and I've been to Pyongyang. I'm one of the few members of Congress who has been there. It's a terrible place. North Korea, not the border, Mm -hmm. but into the capital. And when we were there, we talked to them. It was an intelligence trip. We were hosted by the foreign ministry. We complained about their uh, testing of missiles at that time. This was a number of years ago. And they said, look... We just want to sell them. We'll sell them to you. And that really stuck with me because I'm afraid that what they're doing with their advanced technology now, whether it's technology, whether it's missile capacity, is to sell it. And proliferation, that's a danger to the world over and above the irresponsibility of the president of North Korea. Let me take you back. Uh, You know, a lot of people say, well, I grew up in politics. But in your case, you literally (laughs) grew up in politics. Your father... Yeah. Tom D'Alessandro was is a, a legend mm-hmm. uh, in Baltimore. Started off as, I guess, a, a, an insurance salesman and a ballroom dancer. And well, it was the city. He ran when he ran for Congress. The first, when he ran for office the first time, like 21 years old, he was running. He voted for himself. So mm-hmm. he's been in. He was in politics his whole life. Yes, he's a good dancer. He was a <laughs> wonderful dancer. Uh, handy talent in politics. Did uh, tell me what it was like in your household. You were the youngest of five, right. the, only, the only girl, mm-hmm. uh, w- but politics was all around you. Yeah. you were, everybody was an enlistee. Well, the thing is, is that you have to understand that was one part of our lives. It was a very important part of our lives, but we were, um, uh, in our home, we were devoutly Catholic. 
fiercely patriotic about America, deeply proud of our Italian-American heritage, and staunchly democratic. Mm -hmm. uh, we saw a relationship among all of those things. Uh, and again, some of our good friends were Republicans. So while we had disagreements on policy, it wasn't any politics of personal destruction, as you see uh, in, uh, now. I come from Chicago, so I appreciate uh, how uh, politics at the local level uh, works. What did you learn in those elections, and you were involved yeah. in many of them as a child, yeah. stuffing <laughs> envelopes, right. answering the phone when constituents call, right? Well, they, that would only be if I did answer the phone if I thought I was getting a call myself. The, um, here's the thing. Uh, underlying it all was the idea that public service is a noble calling, uh, that we all have a responsibility to each other. I grew up in an Italian-American neighborhood, Little Italy, in Baltimore, Maryland. A sense of community was there. So if people needed help, they were like family to all of us, and some were newcomers to our country. That's why I feel so strongly about uh, newcomers to our country. And so if, it, if they were hungry or if they needed a job or if they needed a place in the projects or they needed help with anything, you tried to direct them to where that would be. The... Um, but at the end of the day, that, there also was a, a necessity to win elections. Yeah, but those people all voted Democratic. It wasn't. <laughs> I think maybe two people didn't in the whole 500 and some that lived in that neighborhood. Were there disciplines you learned then that yeah, yeah. you well, carried they, forward? Yeah. I didn't know. I mean, I had no interest in running for public office. Absolutely, positively, none. And my life at that time, when I was born. My father was in Congress when I was in first grade. He became mayor of Baltimore when I was a freshman. You, were, you held the, you were the Bible the when Bible you got sworn him. in. yeah. And then when I was at, um, um, at Trinity College, he was still the mayor of Baltimore. So that was the life we led. And every election was exciting. You know, we, we, our beautiful home had on the front table there pamphlets, bats, Buttons, placards, we call them, bumper stickers, whatever it was going to be. There was the state races, the local races, the presidential, whatever it was. It was always uh, to be involved and was pretty exciting. You, you, I once asked you what you learned and you said, I learned how to count. Count, yeah, that was it. Then I had to count. You, had, you know, that, that I remember just not wanting to learn, you know, just observing it, it, it was... How you got the votes you needed. How you get the votes. You just have to make sure that you have the votes and your timing relates to when you have the votes. And uh, that, that was a big, important message. And also, uh, treat everyone as your friend, but know who your friends are so that you're not counting wrong. <laughs> mm -hmm. Because people can nod. They can <laughs> say, I understand. You'd be I great. Get it. How about you'd be great? <laughs> but that does That's a definite no. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you learned how to read that. That's probably still useful to you today. Yeah. Your mother was uh, active. Yes. Uh, but really as a kind of organizer behind the yes, scenes yes. of everything. In the first part of your adult life, that's sort of the role you played in politics. You went out to California. You were the person who helped raise the money. You were the person yeah. who helped organize the party and, and so on. W was that the role that women were generally expected to play in politics? Well, um, we always, I remember as a little girl and uh, growing up there that we always were hoping that more women 
would be an elective office. That wasn't role My mother had seven children, six boys, one girl, one passed away young, but she was a mom, first and foremost. And um, also in terms of of the sense of community beyond even our Italian-American neighborhood, uh, she um, respected the role that other people played, who shared our values about helping people. And, and, and even through our church, when she was a very devout Catholic. But she wouldn't have imagined herself running for public oh, office. Oh, no, never, no, no, no. She and she didn't. probably wouldn't have imagined you running for public office. No, because I had no interest. But she, um, she would have but been she an said, but your she brothers. Was an inventor. She was a poet. She, could, she would have been an astute business person, except that my father didn't, you know, he kind of wanted to control the whole thing, so that was that. You know, he, he didn't want her being entrepreneurial. It was a, an era. It was an era, and, and I think if she lived now, God knows what she could do. She'd be president of the United States or something, but she would be a success at whatever it was. But she was uh, content in her, uh, I mean, her family, first and foremost. My father's success, my brother's success. Who later Your brother became, became mayor, mayor of Baltimore yeah. as well. Yeah, I, read, I read somewhere that when you ran for Congress yeah. the first time in 1987, yeah. that your father sent your brother out just to look around and make sure that you were doing it right. Yeah. Is, that, is that a true story? Yeah, when, what happened was uh, my brother was coming himself anyway, but <laughs> yes, Dad, I'm going. Um, and they wanted to make sure I had the grassroots operation because if you have a con- grassroots, you're just having a conversation. You're not having an effective political action. So he came out and um, we had the butcher paper. I had the farm workers, that, uh, the people who organized the farm workers were organizing my grassroots, and I'm very close to them. But anyway, um, they put all the butcher paper up there, and they calculated in the worst-case scenario uh, that I needed 5,000 more Pelosi-identified voters, or else I would lose by 1,500 votes. That's this is in a primary. This is in a primary. I would lose by 1,500 votes. I needed 5,000 more. We got the 5,000. It was easy because I had many supporters, but I had to make sure they voted. 5,000 votes. This goes I, back to being able to count. And I won by 3,500. No kidding. And so 1,500 lose, 3,500 win. So then he said, when he called my father, he said, I don't know if she's going to win, Dad. Oh, but I know she's making the effort. So Yeah, someone told me that he said she has a better organization than we ever had. <laughs> I don't know if he said that, but I do remember him telling the story of when my father first ran for mayor. Now, you understand, he's Italian-American, one of the earliest Italian-Americans in Congress, so proud of that. And then he's running for mayor. Now, we've never had a Catholic mayor in Baltimore, so leapfrog over the Irish. I say this, to, I have Irish grandchildren. I don't have Irish grandparents, but I have Irish grandchildren. Leapfrogs over the Irish and runs for mayor, Italian-American. Imagine this, in the 40s and wins, the late 40s and wins. Um, but the day of the election, my brother and he went to the roof of our house in Little Italy, and they looked to see if the people were going to the headquarters to pick up the packets. And they could see, like, 5 o'clock in the morning, the lights in the dark, the lights converging and converging and converging. And they, he said... To Tommy, my father said to my brother Tommy, "Well, we have a shot." You, uh, your dad passed away shortly after you got yeah. elected to Congress, but he was there right. when you got sworn in right. to the Congress in which he served. What, what did it mean to him? What did he say to you at that time? 
Well, he was, first of all, they never really thought that. I, 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 when I went to California, I wasn't raising money. But I was asked to be a, a chair of the party. I, I said, no, I'll be northern chair, and then I'll be chair, but I'm not leapfrogging over other people. And Jerry Brown was governor then, and I was chair of Jerry now. Brown. As yeah, Some things never change. <laughs> yeah. So proud of him. He's so wonderful. But the uh, And... Um, and so when they asked me to be chair of the party, I, ha- I wasn't a fundraiser. I had brought Jerry Brown to Maryland for his presidential race. Mm-hmm. And when and ran his race there, and he won. And he won. So when we went back to California, he said at the welcoming th- couple thousand people dinner, when we got back, he said, Nancy Pelosi was the political architect of my presidential race in Maryland. So that catapulted me from the kitchen to the, to the Congress eventually, but in between I became the chair of the party. I wasn't a fundraiser or anything. I was an organizer. I knew how to organize. I, that was in my DNA. Mm-hmm. But in order to keep the doors open, you have right. to raise money. No. So that was why I was raising money. But raising money was not my yeah, no, path. I understand. I understand. Your mother, you said, could have been anything, could have been president yeah, of the yeah, United yeah. States. Yeah. You became, you're still the most uh, prominent, powerful woman in American political history. Sad to say, I was sure Hillary Clinton would take that place. Yeah. <laughs> but she didn't. We'll talk about that in a second. But you, uh, what, what, would it have, what would have meant to her uh, to know, would she, would she have been happy about that? Would she have been bewildered by it? Uh, would, because it really yeah. does mark how much the country has changed. Yeah. My mother loved when women succeeded, forgetting that I was her daughter. And when President Clinton was president and I was in Congress at the time, any time he would appoint a woman, whether it was Madeleine Albright, Wendy Sherman, people like she'd write me a note, be sure to tell them how happy we are, how happy we are. Because she just thought that that was the great underutilized resource in our country. Um, but you wanted you to be a nun. Well, she wanted me to be a nun because, you know, politics is not exactly a day at the beach. You have to, you, you know, you get in the arena. You take a punch, and you're going to have to be able to throw one, too. So it's, it's tough. You had and, four older brothers. That probably helped. No, five. Ah, that five, helped. Yeah. Well, now my brothers were very protective of me, and that asserted my independence as well. But, um, but anyway, uh, she knows. I, you know, I'm a believer, so I know that she knows all of this anyway. Let's talk. You mentioned Hillary Clinton. Let's talk about uh, the Democratic Party. Uh, obviously, that was an unexpected result in 2016, um, and there were a lot of factors. She's talked about them, you know, the, the Comey investigation and the Russians and so on. But it seems to me, just looking at it as a practitioner, that there were some real uh, failings of the campaign and the party itself, and one of them was to have an overarching economic message that spoke to uh, the entire country. It felt like the party was saying, we've got women, we've got minorities, we've got young people, and so we don't really need you guys. And they heard that message and, and didn't vote for Democrats. If I may I'll just say this, we had a president in the White House for eight years who did a great deal for working families in our country. I'm familiar with them. You, you, say, so you're saying the party. So when you say the party... I'm then, talking about the campaign. You know what I'm saying? Well, the campaign, then we're talking about the campaign. Yeah. And the presidential campaign is it. That is the main event mm-hmm. of politics. Yes. The rest of us, we're the lounge act. You can't, really, the, you can't really drive a, a message without the presidential. presidential. No, the presidential is it. Right. Every four years, that's the main right. event. And that's about... 
your vision, right. your judgment and knowledge about how this affects people, your plan to get something done, and how you connect with people. And I think that, that all of our president, presidents and candidates as well have had great vision, knowledge, judgment, and plans for success. They didn't all connect. President Obama connected. He became president. Hillary Clinton, I think, would have connected, except for some of the obstacles you said. But one thing I do kind of put up a wall and say, don't put it on the House and Senate Democrats (laughs) that we didn't win the presidential. (laughs) Because the last time we had the chance to be the voice was in 05 and 06. And Harry Reid and I went out there and we said, we're going to win the Congress. People said, be ready for a permanent Republican majority. President Obama, excuse me, President Bush in January of 05 was at 58% in the polls. We had to take his numbers down because he wanted to privatize Social Security. We had to make sure that the public was aware of that corruption, cronyism and incompetence that weighed in on Katrina and the rest. By September... Two years ago, you were... were, uh preaching the gospel of cooperation and mutual support. I understand that. But you can't negotiate unless you have some strength. (laughs) So you have to show your strength. It doesn't mean you cooperate by uh, by conceding. It means you cooperate by showing your strength. mm -hmm. And so we won that election. And that was the, the last time that the congressional Democrats led the way. No, I understand. I'm not indicting the congressional Democrats. No, but you were saying the party. You were saying the party. Let me just say, I come from the industrial Midwest. A lot of people in rural areas, I have a home in a rural area, uh, they had Trump signs in their lawn. Um, Not all of them, you know, fit the caricature of the sort of toothless, ignorant, racist. I think that's been subscribe to to that. But I mean, no, I understand. I understand. But there was a sense of alienation that the economy was uh, rigged, as the president said. Uh, And there was a real jaundice not just among them, about Washington itself. Yes, justifiable, because people said it was uh, uh, gridlock. It wasn't gridlock. It was obstruction on the part of the Republicans. But let's look to the future, because that's the... But, 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 and as we look to the future, first of all, we have to reject any caricatures of who voted for Trump. I, I, I think that that was wrong for people to... Well, not necessarily when people would say uneducated. No, they're educated. They're educated in raising their families, fighting our wars, building our country, uh, and the rest. So, so I, I don't subscribe to that. But I do agree that there, our me- the message did not come across, and that's what we have to correct. Do you know that forty uh, that the largest cohort of, of voters who named uh, equality. Uh, that they were looking for their candidates, that they wanted someone who would fundamentally change Washington. Donald Trump got 83% of those voters, and he continues to cultivate uh, those voters. You've been here 30 years, and uh, you've been a leader for 15. uh, And you're sort of an an icon of, 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 of... the, of official Washington, because you've just been here uh, a while. Some of your uh, younger members, uh, Linda Sanchez from your state in California, uh, said in the last week that they thought the torch should be passed yeah. uh, to new leaders. Is there a point, when you think about the negative ads that are run, yeah. you, you, you've been yeah. lucky I enough to be featured in many of them. I know this is one of your points that you like to make, but let me um, respond to it. 
Self-promotion is a terrible thing, but somebody has to do it. And so I will self-promote. I'm giving them the opportunity. Yeah, I know that. I know, and, I, and I'm glad you are, because sometimes you make the point when I'm not there. But the point is this. Um, uh, I would have walked away if Hillary Clinton had won. The Care Act would be intact. I thought the Senate would win. Things would be good. There'd be a woman at the table, at the head of the table. She didn't. Affordable Care Act, I feel very proprietary about. Yes, as you and, should. And know it better than probably anybody, not the staff. My staff is no, so No, I've great. said it not would not staff. have passed without you. But so, so that was my mission to stay for that. Uh, I have the full confidence of overwhelming majority of my members in my caucus. Are there people who are ambitious and want to, to vie for who comes next? That's up to the caucus, whoever comes next. But I feel very proud to say, yes, there's a woman at the table, and I'm fighting for the Affordable Care Act, among other things. The, um, uh, I think that the present occupant of the White House shows that experience counts for something, because he has none, and he has not accomplished anything. Uh, While well, we have not won some of these special elections, we've won every legislative fight, and that's where I am in the fray. So I feel very proud of myself. And I feel very proud of the support that I have for members. And it's not going to be up to a few people who have ambition uh, to determine how long I stay. That's up to the majority of my caucus, not to a few. And, and frankly, I owe them a debt of gratitude because every time they come after me, the support I have from my members and from our supporters outside just uh, uh, amplifies. So I thank you, them. You don't sound that grateful, actually, but <laughs> even though you owe them a debt of gratitude. Yes, I do. Yeah, um, I do. Thanks. But I don't <laughs> think they're doing themselves any good because there are other people that they, their goal is to leapfrog over those other people, and I'm not sure that that's going to work. But that's neither here nor there. There's a waste of my time to even talk about it. What is important is how we have our better deal. Uh, we have it put together by three of our members, uh, uh, David Cicilline, uh, Hakeem Jeffries, and uh, uh, Sherry Bustos, elected by the members to develop our message. We're working with the Senate, a better deal, better jobs, better wages, better future, how you can uh, make sure that our families have the tools to take them into the jobs of the 21st century. And this is our message to America. Now, has it been eclipsed by hurricanes, fires, disasters, and the rest? Yes. But we will keep with it. And members are going around in their districts listening, test driving it, taking it on the road to test drive it to see how it can be uh, uh, refined, as I say, working with the Senate. So we feel very much like we're unified on that. And by the way, when, uh, if, if members don't vote for me, that's one thing. But they all vote for the issues that we care about because we have whatever our differences are about personalities – uh, they're very, uh, we're very unified on our values, which unite us. And people compliment me and say, well, you keep them together. I said, I don't. Our values keep us together. So this is the extraordinary chapel at Trinity. Yes. You spent a lot of time here yes. as a young woman. Mm-hmm. A girl. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And you, you said earlier that faith was one of the cornerstones of your family, of your upbringing. Yes. Uh, what does it mean to you, and, and how did that help shape your choices? Well, faith, of course, is uh, part of faith, hope, and charity. And I do believe that faith is what gets some people, gives people hope 
because in the charity of others, that someone will help them when they need help, and they will help others. And so uh, for us, our Catholic faith was a bedrock of who we were, and that was a faith that respected the beliefs of other people. And it's about the Gospel of Matthew. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was uh, homeless, you sheltered me, and the list goes on. And that's, that's who we were, and I think that I like the separation of church and state, but I do think that that's part of our agenda as a country to meet the needs of the American people. You know, you hear some, some of the supporters of Senator Sanders saying that if candidates are not for single-payer health care, Democrat, the Democratic Party should not support them. And there are other issues that are raised. How do you how do you manage that? Well, you have to enlarge the issue. If what the president, what what Senator Sanders is saying, is that we want access to health care for all Americans, we all share that view. A path to that is the Affordable Care Act, and if they if that leads to uh, Medicare for all or single payer or anything like that, so be it. But it's not to knock one thing down to get something else. Because yeah, I remember this discussion it. when you and I both were working, uh, I in the White House and you uh, uh, on the Hill on the Affordable Care Act, and there were those who said, "Don't vote for it because it didn't include a public option," which. Uh, we supported, you supported, but it wasn't going to pass. We had it in the House bill. We had the public action (laughs) in the House bill. Yes, I remember that actually, (laughs) but uh, it wasn't going to become law that way. Mm -hmm. And now I run into people who've been helped by the Affordable Care Act, and I think what a terrible tragedy it would have been if they had been deprived of the right to get health care because everything we wanted wasn't in that That's right. proposal. That's, but isn't that a challenge for you? Right. Because compromise has taken on uh, a kind of dirty connotation um, um, among some folks on the left, also among folks on the right, and it makes it harder to, to find those you, you, you paths forward. It so, you describe it so beautifully and almost inspirationally and challenging. The, what I say to the members is support the bill for what it is not for what it isn't, when you have almost, when you have a good deal of in the bill. It's, it's a missed opportunity. We'll all reject it. But if it takes us down the path, and there hasn't been anything, whether it's Social Security, Civil Rights Act, Voting Rights Act, uh, Medicare, that hasn't been improved as we've gone forward. And in our bill, add the bill that passed, the Affordable Care Act, does allow states to have a public option, so it isn't shut the door on it. But it wasn't what I would have liked. But again, uh, it's all, uh, uh, you're not compromising your principles. You're just getting the votes. I don't want to mix the profane profane with the sacred. But uh, right now, um, uh, the Affordable Care Act has challenges legislatively. But it's also challenged because the administration is... Not not supportive of it, and so some of the efforts that are needed to yeah. to make it work subsidies uh, right. prom- a promotion to get people to sign up for it are you worried about the Affordable Care Act sort of being strangled uh, without legislative effort? sabotaged is the word we used they're sabotaging it by uh, uh, placing doubt as to whether there'll be the cost sharing uh, funds they they are sabotaging it by not doing outreach to increase the pool the bigger the pool the healthier the pool, the lower the cost. They're sabotaging it by uh, using the money that is supposed to do the outreach to do the opposite, to do the opposite. We never did that. But, you know? but that, in a, in a sense, the, the, uh, creating 
the reality they hope to create, which yeah. is of a failing It's like law. a self-fulfilling prophecy. That's why we have to, without mixing politics and church, win the next election. But we also have to take it to the American people. And let me just say, God bless the American people. They're so great. And they are the ones, the people speaking out, telling their stories, are the ones who defeated uh, the Republican efforts to overturn the Affordable Care Act. We did our inside maneuvering, counting our votes. But without the outside mobilization to get those votes we would not have been successful. So God bless the storytellers. When you were here, uh, these pews were filled with, yes. uh, with uh, girls from yeah. uh, generally very refined backgrounds mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, and from uh, one place, which was sort of America, white America, mm-hmm. and so on. Uh, it's much different now, isn't it? It's so beautifully different now. When we were here, uh, we had sort of a, a shared background. We came from some, some of the same kinds of families and the rest. And part of our mission here uh, was to improve the lives of other people. And that is exactly the mission of the school, the, uh, uh, school sisters of Notre Dame de Namur uh, and their mission uh, to bring young people, young women, uh, to their full potential. So now the school, which was overwhelmingly white, we had two. We had some African students way back then, early '60s. Now, 95 percent of the school is uh, African American or Hispanic. Latina, and that's a beautiful thing. You said including a hundred of the so-called dreamers. dreamers. Mm-hmm. So the mission of the, the nuns has been uh, fulfilled, and those of us who had the privilege of going here before uh, see our hopes, dreams, and aspirations realized in these young women. When I was speaker, and I would come over here, well, even when I come now. You began I, your speakership here. I get right in this chapel. But when I came here to see the, the young women, the students, and they'd say, it's nice that you're speaker but we're going to be presidents of the United States. But each one of them would say, I'm going to be president of the United States. Beautiful inner city, African-American young women with all the confidence and self-esteem. Thank you to the sisters of Notre Dame. You know, this, this vision that you speak of, that these young, the, the aspirations of these young students here, these uh, young uh, women who say, you were speaker, I might be president of the United yeah. States. Uh, I come from an immigrant family, I, and I identify with that. That's part of what, I mean, the sort of, this, this, uh, the changes in our society are also, place strains on it as well. There are people who resist that, yes. uh, people who uh, feel like something is lost if somebody else gains. It's not a zero-sum game, and that's really one of the insecurities that some voters have, that if, if women and minorities are advancing, that it's at their expense. But that's not the case. And in terms of my advancing women in politics of all uh, colors, mm-hmm. um, it's not that they're better than the men. It's just we want the di- uh, diversity of opinion at the table. Uh, but that is also to value the contribution that others make as well. So hopefully that won't be a source of insecurity, but uh, encouragement. I, I have to ask you uh, this. Uh, the film producer, Harvey Weinstein, oh, uh, you know, I don't know how much uh, people ever knew of him before no, this, this week, oh but uh, they do in Los Angeles and New York and Washington, and it's, a, it's become a major mm-hmm. issue because of abuse of women. And, 
you know, we talked about the cynicism about Washington, yeah. uh, and it's not just about gridlock, but there's this sense that people are willing to tolerate things in order to raise money, to get reelected. Mm-hmm. And so Republicans will attack Democrats, Democrats will attack Republicans. Do you think people generally within the party should have been more outspoken when that story broke about him? Well, the story broke over the weekend, and we, we were out yesterday, but I think people are outspoken. I, uh, he, let's just put it this way, the House was not a place that he was more into the presidential and the Senate. So, I understand that you, you didn't have a close relationship no. politically, and, 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 no. and I, 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 probably there were times when you had a difficult relationship with him politically, is my recollection. Yes. Uh, but, uh, but you understand the question I'm oh, asking. Yeah. No, Republicans I mean, uh, sort of were reluctant to uh, criticize Bill O'Reilly or Roger Ailes. Democrats do seem a, a little less uh, eager, and Democrats, of course, present themselves as the progressive party. Uh, women's rights, respect for women and all people. Uh, it, it seems as if Democrats should have been leading the charge. On well, the, the fact is, is it just happened. It just happened over the weekend. I think that you will see people uh, speaking out. But it's not just about that, because who said worse things than the current occupant of the White House in, in disrespect of women? Uh, it's about disrespect of women, whether it's their uh, judgment in terms of the size and timing of their family, whether it's equal pay for equal work in the workplace, whether it's uh, abuse of, of uh, domestic violence, violence on campus, uh, viol- uh, harassment in the workplace. This has, has to stop, and maybe this can be the tipping point where people just say, enough. You may be thinking in old ways about how things should be, but that's not where the world is now. Fathers don't want that for their daughters, for their sisters, for their, of course, for their wives, and certainly did not want it for their mothers. But I think we're in a new place on this. And he has gotten more publicity now than I think ever. And uh, That's for sure. And maybe well, he's sure just going to have to be, just have to be uh, the person that uh, pays the price for not only his own behavior, uh, but changes attitudes. It's really, I mean, we, we go through this all the time, whether it's, well, uh, laws that undermine women, their personal choices, their freedom of, of uh, decision-making and the rest. And uh, it's just absolutely wrong. Do you, do you think that those stories about the president himself have uh, set the cause back? I don't know. I don't think about that. All I care about as far as the president is concerned right now is how he's undermining working families in our country, how he's turning back health care for tens of millions of people in our country, how he's making the world a more dangerous place because of his carelessness and recklessness in his comments about North Korea, what he's doing about Iran. So I'm more concerned about the policy aspects of it. Public made a judgment about him. They elected him president. And we're making a judgment about his policies. And where we can find common ground with him, we will still strive to do so. Um, we, uh, we were chatting about uh, how long ago it seems that Barack Obama got elected mm-hmm. president. We both remember uh, that night in Grant Park, the night of the inauguration. Yeah. There was a sense that America had crossed a threshold mm-hmm. in terms of race relations. Yes. Uh, in this past week, we've seen a continuation of this uh, debate about the, the the pledge and the flag and uh, 
NFL players and so on. And that seems like a subset of a larger uh, fissure that has widened uh, over the course of the last couple of years and with the election of this president. Are we moving backward? We can't be. We cannot be moving backward. I get this question all the time. How does the same country elect Barack Obama and Donald Trump? Uh, The election of Barack Obama as president of the United States is a source of great pride to our country, to our founders, to our Constitution. But not everyone. But those who were opposed to that, and part of that was what Mitch McConnell said in the Congress of the United States, our goal is to make sure he is a one-term president. That was a terrible thing. It was fraught with a lot of meaning. Now some of those people were galvanized uh, to support Donald Trump. Not only, but he had other supporters as well. Uh, but um, uh, what I, we take an oath to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States. These football players are expressing their beliefs. And that's their right under the Constitution of the United States, which we pledge to support. So I don't know why this has to be considered racial except for those who want to make it so. Um, but the president seems to have a genius for exploiting those chasms. Uh, well, if you're a fearmonger, you can be considered a genius because it's really cheap shots. And that's really unfortunate. Uh, so whether he's a genius or a fearmonger, whatever it is, there's a market for it. He knows that. And so call that genius, if you will. I like to reserve genius for something more constructive and positive. You can have a genius for all kinds of things. Oh, but right. what, now, he, <laughs> what, what was your reaction when he sent the vice president this week to Indianapolis to uh, the football game between the Colts there and your San Francisco 49ers to essentially stage a walkout? But they knew what they knew what was going to happen there. So was the vice president saying, I don't honor the right of these people under the Constitution to express their views? Is that what he was? What was he walking out on the Constitution of the United States? Seems to me it was. He was. How do we uh, you know, you work with members from all over the country and each party across the aisle. And how how do we reconnect yeah. Uh, we seem, you know, you have rural districts and yeah. urban districts and the parties seem to be separating out and people seem to be sorting themselves into silos. Uh, that seemed very apparent in the last election. How do you get that back? Well, we have to remember that America is a great country and God is always with us. So we have a lot on the asset side of the ledger. We have also a responsibility as we weigh equities in terms of decisions we have to make to try to bring people together, to try to bring people together. Uh, That doesn't necessarily always mean in the Congress. It just means also in the country. And I, you know, I I just believe in the American people. Uh, Abraham Lincoln said public sentiment is everything. With it, you can accomplish almost anything. Without it, almost nothing, to paraphrase. But the first part is his Public sentiment is everything. And so we have to, uh, in a, uh, as, with clarity, communicate with the American people about what the choices are. And by and large, they make the right decision in terms of they support, as I say, our dreamers. They support gun safety in our country. They support uh, uh, equality for women in terms of equal pay for equal work. They could support a lot of things. They support a, a minimum wage, raising the minimum wage. They don't always vote upon that, 
It's not dispositive of who they vote for because they vote for a person. But as long as the people they vote for understand what they care about, whether it's a Democrat or a Republican, the people are very wise. You said earlier that um, had Hillary Clinton won, you would have walked away. Uh, How will you know when that time comes? I know you've got uh, a bevy of grandchildren who you like to be with and you've got other. But when will you know when this is it? I've, well, it's I've, about I've a mission. It's about a mission. It's not about a, a shift. And uh, this, you know, I'm telling you, the Affordable Care Act, again, Social Security, Medicare and Medicaid, Affordable Care Act, this is a big, this is part of my mission there, among other things. I came to Congress motivated by one thing, the one in five children in America who lives in poverty, the one in five. I have five children myself, and the fact that one in five of the children in America goes to sleep hungry at night, lives in poverty, I find that to be totally intolerable, unacceptable for our country as great as ours. So my, that's what drew me into putting myself on the line. This is not an easy thing, put yourself on the line. Put myself on the line to make that fight for those children. So uh, one way, one massive manifestation of that, of course, is to make sure they have access to health care as well as education. So people ask me what are the three most important issues facing the Congress. I always say the same thing. Our children, our children, our children. Their health, their education, the economic security of their families, the pension security of our grandparents and a world at peace in which they can thrive, a safe environment in which they can breathe. And that's the fight. Uh, we, uh, I, you know, I've, I have fabulous members in my caucus, try to give them as much opportunity as possible so they have the standing on issues to make those fights. Is it fair to say that you, just reading between the lines, that given the threats to some of these priorities that you care about, that you're not likely to leave Uh, before uh, the next presidential election. How many men have you asked that question to? Uh, I haven't had, I'm going to, I would love to have uh, Senator McConnell Mm -hmm. sitting in that chair, Mm -hmm. Speaker Ryan in that chair. I mean, you know, it's it's really a girl question. Do you think it is? It's really a girl question. Oh, yeah, I think, of course I think it is. And I think it, it, I think it was part of of, uh, Hillary Clinton's election as well. But I do know why I'm there, what my purpose is, uh, what a difference I can make. And do I think I'm indispensable? Absolutely not. But I do think I have a responsibility, which I intend uh, to honor. And it's really important to me. Nothing, nothing, and this is an absolute fact, nothing is more wholesome to our political process and our government than the increased participation of women in politics. And I know this for a fact, that if we increase the level of civility in our politics and decrease the role of money, we will elect more women, more minorities, more diversity, more representation of what our great country is about. And that's part of my agenda, too. Leader Pelosi, thank you so much. You're welcome. It's great to be with nice you. Nice to see you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.
quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 